Good morning to you all. My name is Shane Kelly. For those of you who don't know me, I have the privilege of leading the student ministry here at Bethany Bible Church. Uh, Pastor Lance, as Bob mentioned, is in Springdale, Arkansas, serving and preaching there today at a church, uh, blessing them with his preaching. And so uh, he asked me to preach for him this morning. We'll be in Revelation chapter 5 this morning, as I mentioned. We'll also be doing uh, one more worship song at the end in response to God's word. Uh, Worship team, thank you so much. I closed my eyes there for a minute for a couple of those songs and got a little taste, a little preview of what heaven's going to be like. I often like to do that. You'll often see me singing with my eyes closed. And I'm just, oh, just, just getting a little taste of what heaven's going to be like. We are going to be getting a glimpse into a three-part worship service in the throne room this morning in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. This will hopefully dovetail uh, nicely with what Pastor Lance has been teaching us from Second Thessalonians, talking about the, the coming of the son of lawlessness. And the events we'll be covering this morning happened before all that. This is before the second coming of Christ um, and right after the rapture of the church. The book of Revelation, I've had the privilege of going through this book the last couple of months with student ministries. We were in the book of James, and ironically, most of the questions from our study sort of began to steer toward eschatology. And so we'd often find ourselves in the book of Revelation. And so when I was thinking about the next book to, be, to begin teaching in student ministries, I thought to myself, hmm, we're already there a lot. Let's go ahead and start a study of the book of Revelation. It's been a little daunting. It's been a little daunting. I, I think I've definitely learned more than my kids have learned, which I think is appropriate as the leader and as the teacher. Um, and so, boy, it's been a, a very helpful and interesting study. Um, I've heard expositions of the book of Revelation. I've done some studies on my own, but there's nothing like teaching it to a bunch of young people, and then they ask you questions you've never thought of. And I have to say, ooh, let me write that down. I'll get back to you next week. So very, very good for me and hopefully for them. The book of Revelation, of course, was written by the Apostle John in the mid-90s under Emperor Domitian. That's for you history nerds like me. Emperor Domitian was the emperor at the time of the writing of this book. But the Apostle John was imprisoned on the island of Patmos during this time. He was a prisoner. Although he was free to roam around the island, he couldn't leave the island, mainly because of the sharks, I think. The sharks were the main reason. Uh, But of course, the title of this book in the Greek is Apocalypsis. I think that the book of Revelation in many other churches gets a bit of a bad rap for being this scary, mysterious, unknowable book. Who knows what it means? Who could even interpret it? But the good news is that the word apocalypsis means revealing. It's meant to be revealed. It's meant to be clear. It's a revelation. It's a revelation. It's the revelation to the Apostle John. That should be encouraging to guys like me who are uh, studying and teaching through it. And of course, in terms of the way that we understand, the way that we interpret the book of Revelation is that we take a futurist hermeneutic, which means we believe that the events in chapters one through three, from our perspective, from our time, from our place in history, have already happened. There are the letters to the seven churches, seven real churches in real time, real letters to those churches, letters written to the angels of the churches, which we believe are the pastors or shepherds of those churches. Those seven letters went out to real churches in real time with a real message. But in chapter four begins something that has not happened yet. 
It's going to happen in the future. This is a, a, a futurist hermeneutical approach. So, Revelation chapter 5, let's begin in verse 1. What I'd like to do is divide this up into three pieces. So if you're taking notes, I didn't have a chance to get my sermon notes to the ladies in the office in time, but what I'd like to do is, first of all, give you the title of the sermon, which you don't even have yet. Here it is. The title of the sermon is very, very long. It's three whole words, and it's this, the worthy lamb. The worthy lamb. In verses 1 through 4, we will see the Apostle John receiving the revelation from God, but there's a theme of seeking the worthy lamb in verses 1 through 4. Seeking the worthy lamb. And of course, I'll be going over these as we go. The second section is verses 5 through 7, which is standing in awe of the worthy lamb. So seeking the worthy lamb, standing in awe of the worthy lamb. And finally, in verses 8 through 14, it's a worship service, and it's singing to the worthy lamb. Seeking, standing in awe of, and singing to the worthy lamb. Let's jump into verse 1. I read the passage before, and we will be reading this as we go. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. This is in the context of the throne room of God. The four living creatures. The lamb is there. The elders are there. The seven spirits of the Holy Spirit are there. Everyone's there. And in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. Then I, that's the Apostle John, saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And let's pause right there. Let's remind ourselves. Who is sitting on the throne? Is it Jesus? No. It's God the Father. God the Father is seated on the throne. Remember, and we'll talk about this in a little bit as well, when Christ finished his work on the earth, he even said, it is finished, just before he gave up his spirit. When he ascended back into heaven, he ascended into heaven, and then what did he do? He sat down. Where? At the right hand of God. So God the Father is seated, Jesus is there, and it says that John saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll, and why does it need seven seals? Wouldn't one suffice? Wouldn't one do it? Well, this scroll with seven seals signifies a contract, or we might say a title deed, to the earth. And it also describes inside the scroll the means by which Christ will retake his inheritance of the earth and all that is in it through judgment and tribulation and war and blood. A little bit of context here. Uh, Back in olden times, back in the Old Testament, hundreds of years and thousands of years, not hundreds of thousands of years, But a long time ago, when there was contracts between people, uh, you want to buy my land, you want to buy this whole situation, people would write out the contracts just like we do. And when they would write the contract inside the scroll, it was very clear. I, so and so, give this to so and so for this amount, and here's the deal, and this is what they need to do. And it was sealed with seven seals. The reason why there's writing on the outside is merely just a description of what's on the inside. This is a title deed to the earth that Christ must inherit. That's all it means. So, this scroll is not talking about what Christ will inherit 
but rather how he will inherit it. Because as you see, in Revelation chapter 6, it begins an exposition of the seven seals. Those seven seals are nothing good. It's, it's judgment and war and darkness and, and horrific things during the seven-year tribulation on the earth, right after the rapture of the church from the earth. And so this scroll is a, is a thing that, that Christ uh, deserves. It's a thing that, that he will inherit and also describes in great detail what it's going to take to have him inherit the earth. That's verse 1. Verse 2. And I, that's John, saw a mighty angel. We don't know who this angel is. It doesn't say it's Michael. It doesn't say it's Gabriel. It doesn't say. So we, the, the, the angel's name here must remain anonymous. But he's proclaiming with a loud voice. A loud voice crying out to everyone in the throne room saying, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? It's not a rhetorical question. We'll find out in a minute. There's only one who is worthy. And so this angel says, who is worthy? And then in verse three, it says this, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, yes, they looked everywhere, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No one was found. So John's in there. He's receiving this vision. He's seeing this happening. Who is worthy? No one. We can't, we can't find anyone. And look at verse 4. Look at John's proper response. John begins to weep. He begins to weep. In fact, it says that he began to weep loudly. There's another use of this word, this, this sense of weeping, and it's uh, when Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, weeping over her sin, weeping over the fact that she has rejected him. And he says, oh, how I long to gather you uh, under my wings, like a, like a mother hen does for her chicks. I, I wish I could do that. I wish you would let me do that. And Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. It's the same sense here. John is weeping loudly because of the fact that no one had been found to open the scroll. But let's dive deeper. It's not just that someone can't open the scroll. Oh, it's not a big deal. It's, it's going to be okay. No. The, what does that scroll signify? What does it mean that no one can open the scroll at this time? We know how the story goes, but bear with me here. What does this mean for John? What does it mean for the world? What does it mean for the story of redemption? I mean, think about this. There's lots of great men and women in that room right now. The church has already been raptured. All the believers are there. Uh, Abraham is not worthy. Isaac is not worthy. Jacob, Joseph, Job, Moses, David, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Peter, and the apostles, and Paul, they're all standing there as well, and none of them are worthy either. How tragic is that? They've looked everywhere. What does this mean? What does this mean that no one can open the scroll? Why is John weeping so loudly? Well, the fact that no one is there to open the scroll means that there may not be hope for the earth. There may not be redemption for the earth. The earth may need to stay in permanent enslavement to sin forever and ever. That's a dismal reality. We thought there'd be redemption. We thought that the Messiah had taken care of everything. Of course, we know he did. But if no one can open the scroll then the church will stay, excuse me, then the earth will stay just as it is and we won't be redeemed. There won't be an end to all this uh, sin and darkness. There will be no redemption. And that's why John's weeping. I thought there would be hope. It looks like there's no hope. And because of no, of no hope, that's why he's weeping. He's weeping loudly. No one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. 
Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5 now. And again, this is, we've just gone over, forgive me, the first section. The first section is seeking the worthy one in verses 1 through 4. There's the scroll. Who is worthy? Can't find anyone worthy. And then John weeps. That's the first section, seeking the worthy lamb. Look now at the second section, verses 5 through 7. The second section here is titled, Standing in Awe of the Worthy Lamb. There is good news. There is one who is worthy, and he's about to be revealed. Standing in Awe of the Worthy Lamb, verses 5 through 7. Look at verse 5. One of the elders, and by the way, the 24 elders, in case you're wondering, the 24 elders represent the raptured, glorified church. We don't have a name for all the elders. We don't know exactly who they are. There's 24 of them, they're seated on thrones, and they're there. So one of the elders takes John aside, so very helpful, verse 5, and this, one of the elders said to him, verse 5, he says, weep no more. Weep no more, John. John, you've been weeping, but a very appropriate response. And then he says, weep no more. So his initial response in terms of responding to what he knows and responding to what he's seeing is appropriate, but there's more of the story. And therefore, now that the lamb is about to be unveiled, the weeping is actually inappropriate. No need to cry anymore. No need to weep anymore. The elder says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. What's remarkable to me about the Apostle John weeping is that I mean, he, he knew Jesus. He believed Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He saw Jesus live and die. He saw Jesus rise again from the dead. He saw Jesus ascend into heaven. He knows he's the perfect lamb. And yet in this heavenly throne situation, when no one was found worthy, John still weeps. What a beautiful, human, and appropriate response to, wait, what? I thought, I thought there was hope. Well, here comes the lion of the tribe of Judah. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. Let's talk about the lion of the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12, talking about the tribe of Judah. I love this passage. Genesis 49, Verses 8 through 12. This is in the context of Jacob blessing his sons. And look at what he says about Judah, starting in verse 8. Genesis 49, 8 through 12. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness, Who dares rouse him? Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. Interesting. Excuse me, of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Verse 12, his eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth wider than milk. Of course, this is a, in the immediate context, Jacob is blessing his own son, Judah. And yet there's a prophetic sense as well in terms of who is going to come from Judah. 
Jesus himself is the lion of the tribe of Judah. If you're taking notes, Hebrews 7.14 is also very, very helpful in terms of talking more about the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the lion. He is strong. He is fierce. And he is a deadly ruler and Messiah. He's a lion. Yes. And so, I mean, if I were John and I heard that, I would say, great, where's the lion? Can't wait to see this lion come out. Well, we'll see in a minute. It's not a lion who reveals himself as the worthy one, but a lamb. Here we go. What's the second part? What's the second name of Jesus in this group? His second name is the Root of David, Lion of the tribe of Judah, and now the Root of David. Turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. What does it say about Jesus being from the line or being the root of David? If you think about it, the root is the source. Wouldn't David be the root of Jesus? How does that work? Shouldn't Jesus be like a, like a shoot or like a, like a stem from the root? Well, yes, he is both. He is both. But Isaiah chapter 11, look at verses 1 through 5 with me. This is what Isaiah is talking about prophetically, looking ahead at the righteous reign of the branch. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5 says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then look down at verse 10. In that day... The root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. What wonderful words from the prophet Isaiah talking about the root of Jesse, a shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse, and he shall shall rule with a rod of iron, the rod of his mouth, and with his breath he shall kill the wicked. It reminds me of what Pastor Lance talked about last week in terms of the end of the wicked. Uh, what a terrifying specter being killed by the breath of, of one's mouth. Wow. Other, other passages that are very helpful, if you are taking notes, would be Romans fifteen twelve, Romans fifteen twelve, as well as Revelation twenty two sixteen, looking at the root of David. And so turn back with me now to Revelation chapter 5. So he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and he has conquered. He has conquered what? What has he conquered? Well, we don't have time this morning, but 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 57, talks about what Christ has conquered. And I can summarize it for you in these four areas. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 57, talk about the fact that Jesus has conquered the curse of sin. He has conquered the bonds of death. He has conquered the sting of the grave. It even says, oh, death, where is your sting, right? And he also has conquered the power of Satan. He has conquered these things. He has already conquered them, and because of the past act of conquering, he is now worthy. 
He's not worthy because he's going to conquer. He has already conquered. Remember he said, it is finished. And then he sat down. The work is done. He has conquered. And so the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that, so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. And again, we're in the context of standing in awe of the worthy lamb. Verse six says this, and between the throne, so a picture this, there's the throne in the middle, all right? At the four living creatures, you've got the 24 elders. This is what John sees as, as there's who is worthy, no one's worthy. Wait, there is one who's worthy. Where is he? And John's probably doing something like this, looking for someone in the crowd, like where, we looked everywhere. Where, all of a sudden, his eyes fix on something. His eyes fix on something, and this is what he says. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. Now, maybe he was expecting a lion because the elder did say that a lion was coming, so I can't blame John. But he sees a lamb, a lamb, capital L in my Bible, standing as though it had been slain. Let's stop right there. Stop right there. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. Beloved, this is the lamb who has been promised. This is the lamb who has been prophesied about. This is the lamb who has been foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament. I'm thinking about the foreshadowing where Abraham was told by God to sacrifice Isaac, and there's the picture of the substitutionary ram caught in the thicket. The ram takes Isaac's place, and then that ram is sacrificed. That's in Genesis 22. I'm thinking about the Passover when the nation of Israel is in Egypt, they're in bondage. There's the nine plagues. Here comes the 10th plague. And God gives them instructions about how to avoid the death of the firstborn. What do they have to do? They had to select a very special lamb without blemish. Have it in their home for a time. At the appointed time, kill the lamb. And then take its blood. It's a very vivid, grotesque picture. Take its blood and paint the lintel with it. Paint the doorway with the blood of the lamb, and then the angel of death would pass over. Foreshadowing, that's in Exodus 12. Foreshadowing of this lamb. This lamb has been promised. This lamb is coming. This lamb is now here. He has conquered. He has been slain. He is worthy, and here he is. I'm also thinking, turn with me now, to John chapter 1. This is potentially one of my favorite passages in all the New Testament. John chapter 1 Starting in verse 29, this lamb has even been promised by John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. John the Baptist, John chapter 1, starting in verse 29. And it, my Bible makes it easy for me because it says at the top of this paragraph, it says, behold the lamb of God. And here it is. John the Baptist is doing his thing. He's being faithful. He's fulfilling his role, preparing the way. And then verse 29, he says this, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Talk about a title, all right? Talk about, a t- talk about walking into a room and that's your title, okay? CEO of this and CFO of that and you know, manager of bean counting, just doesn't, it just doesn't compare. This is the lamb of God. This is the lamb. Here he is. The lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. And then John says in verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Verse 32, and John bore witness, continuing, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John himself testifies to this. This is the Lamb. He's been promised. Here he is. Here he is. And he's standing there as though having been slain. What would that have looked like? It seems like he, the lamb, would have been standing there, not with blood dripping off of him. He's standing there alive, but there are scars. There are terrible scars. There are horrific scars. Such that, John says, it looks like he should be dead. It looks as though he was slain, and now he's alive again, which, of course, we know really did happen. Jesus really was killed. He really was slain. And when he rose again, those scars didn't go away. He still had the scars. In fact, if you turn to John chapter 20, if you've been in John a few chapters ahead, look at John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. What did Jesus look like after he had been raised from the dead. John chapter 20, 24 through 29. We can get a little glimpse here of maybe what John was talking about. This is in the context of Jesus having appeared to the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. And we give Thomas a bit of a bad rap as well. We call him Doubting Thomas, okay? But he can also redeem himself. I'll talk about that some other time. So John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Let's get a glimpse of what maybe... Uh, John the Apostle is talking about here. So he says, Now Thomas, in verse 24, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Okay, Thomas. Verse 26. Be careful what you wish for. Eight days later, his disciples, as Jesus' disciples, were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord, and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus himself was there in that room standing as though he had been slain. He had, hand, he had uh, holes, marks in his hands and in his feet. He had the mark of the spear in his side. He had been slain and yet he had risen again. And so that's what the, that's what the lamb would have looked like in terms of standing as though having been slain. This is a, a, just a remarkable, remarkable image. Turn back now to Revelation chapter 5. Let's look at what the Lamb has in addition to these things. 
We're in verse 6. A lamb standing as though it had been slain with, what, seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Let's stop right there. This isn't very complicated, thankfully. Um, The seven horns, the seven eyes, and the seven spirits, it tells us what's going on. The seven horns signify, the number seven, of course, signifying completion or wholeness and perfection. And the horns signify strength and power. And so this lamb has all strength and all power, what we call omnipotence. Youth group, remember the attributes of God? This is, this is an excellent uh, review for all of us. Seven horns, all strength and power. He is omnipotent. The seven eyes, he is all-knowing, all-seeing, and therefore he is omniscient. And finally, that seven spirits of God, completion, perfection, this is the Holy Spirit in his perfection. He is all-present, which means he is also omnipresent. Just, just further fleshing out who he is there in verse 6. Now, verse 7, folks, verse 7 is the center of this passage. Verse 7 is the most exciting part of this passage. It's what we have been building up to this whole time. We've been building up. Okay, here we are in the throne room, and and wait, is there someone worthy? Okay, there is someone worthy, but this is the pinnacle event in Revelation chapter 5, the pinnacle event. This is what we've been waiting for. We've been promised this. We've been looking forward to this, and here it is is verse 7, and he, that is the lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him, that's the father, who was seated on the throne. Everything that John has been describing since this vision began in chapter 4, verse 1, has been building toward this moment. This views the great culminating act of history, the act that will signal the end of man's day, The ultimate goal of redemption is about to be seen. Paradise will be regained and Eden will be restored. That's from Pastor John MacArthur. This is what we have been waiting for. Up until now, things have not been right. God created the world perfectly, sin entered, and has been messed up ever since then. One commentator, Dr. Barnhouse, summarizes it very helpfully in this way. He says there are are four things that before this moment have been completely out of order, and yet this moment in verse 7 begins to set them aright. And number one, the church. The church is supposed to be in heaven, but we're not in heaven yet. That's, That's the first thing. The church is on the earth, but it needs to go to heaven. That begins now, right? Israel, the second one, is supposed to be living in peace with all of its neighbors. We all know that that hasn't been happening, and yet this event starts that process. Number three, Satan is supposed to be in the lake of fire. This begins that process. And finally, Christ. Christ is supposed to be seated on the throne and reigning over the earth. And that begins now as well. This is a seminal event. This is an a incredibly uh, central and important and vital moment in the throne here. This is the pinnacle of this text. Daniel 7 don't turn there, but Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, uh, is one more view and one more look, one more perspective on what this moment signifies. And for the remainder of our time, beloved, we're going to be celebrating and looking at the result of this action. 
So if verse 7 is the pinnacle, man, it is all downhill from here in a very wonderful way. It's a very wonderful response. Look now at the third section, singing to the worthy lamb. We started off in verses 1 through 4, seeking the worthy lamb. In verses 5 through, th- five through 7, we looked at standing in awe of the worthy lamb. And now look at 8 through 14, singing to the worthy lamb. If you look carefully, and we will be doing this in our, in our remain, remaining minutes, if you look very carefully, there are basically three sections here. It's sort of a three-part worship service, sort of a, almost three different hymns sung by three different groups of people, building and building. We call that a crescendo, right, Joel? A crescendo where we're building, and it's getting louder, and it's getting more exciting, and there's more people involved. I asked Joel all kinds of musical stuff. He knows all the answers. We are building here. Three sections, three hymns, and I'm going to give you what these hymns are about right now so you can kind of whet your appetite to what we'll be looking at. These three hymns celebrate God as creator and redeemer and rejoice that he is about to take back what is rightfully his. This is the moment that all Christians and the entire creation long for. That's also from Pastor John MacArthur. So the first section now in verses 9 through 10, look at this, excuse me, starting in verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In the grammatical grammatical sense, it seems like only the 24 elders are holding the harps and the golden bowls full of incense. That's just a little freebie for you. Uh, And the golden bowls of incense, of course, are the prayers of the saints. They're falling down before the lamb, just like Moses fell down before the burning bush. There's nothing else more appropriate when in the presence of someone and something holy like that, just fall down on your face. It's just, that's just the best. Also, take off your shoes. Take off your shoes, fall on your face, all right? Moses learned that. Verse nine is the first hymn, this first hymn. Look at verse nine. And they, now they being the four living creatures and the 24 elders now, sing a new song. And what are they saying? They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's the first hymn, the four living creatures and the 24 elders. God has made us into a kingdom and priests in the sense that we are in his kingdom. We are his children and now even part of his kingdom. We're now priests because we no longer need a priest to advocate for us. Christ himself is our advocate. When he died, what happened to that big thick curtain in the temple? It was torn in two because we now have direct access to God through Christ. Christ is our advocate. Christ is now our great high priest. There's so much more I'd like to delve into here, but... Time is not allowing me. This is the first hymn, the four living creatures and the 24 elders. Look now at the second hymn in verse 13. Excuse me, no, I'm sorry. Verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12. This is the second hymn. Then I, that's John, looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying, 
with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I like to think of it like this. The first hymn was sort of like the worship leaders, all right? The worship leaders are singing, okay? The 24 elders and the four living creatures are leading this worship service, and they sort of begin the first verse, if you will. This second verse is sort of like the choir. The choir up on stage is now singing along too, and it's their turn to worship the lamb, worship the worthy one. And now in the third section, we now see that it's sort of like the congregation, right? All the creatures, every creature, it says, even in verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. I can't think of anywhere else where they could have looked. That's that's, that's, that's absolutely everywhere. And all that is in them saying, kind of like the congregation now chiming in, worship leaders first, then the choir, and now the congregation saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It's interesting to know that in each of these hymns, when I first read this, it almost seemed like, you know, first it was the four living creatures and the, and the 24 elders, and then the angels joined in, and then the congregation joined in. But it's actually three groups of people. They're almost taking turns. First this group, then the angels, and then the congregation. Um, just a beautiful worship service, a beautiful response to the fact that the Lamb is the one and only worthy one. Every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them are worshiping, are worshiping the worthy one. And then look at verse 14. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. It seems like the four living creatures as all this was going on, are actually continually saying amen. And what does the word amen mean? It means this is true, or let it happen, or, or let it be. Yes, we, we, we affirm this. This is true. Amen. Let it happen. Let it be. And they're just saying it continually, over and over again. You may recall from Revelation chapter 4, in uh, chapter 4, verse 8, the four living creatures are also, day and night, without ceasing, also saying what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is a big worship service. And the four living creatures are there. And the 24 elders are there. God the Father is sitting on the throne. The Lamb has taken the scroll. He's the worthy one. The myriads and myriads of angels are now chiming in. The word myriad in Greek means 10,000. We think that that's the biggest number they could think of and put a name to it. Myriad, so 10,000 times 10,000 and then other thousands. It's an uncountable number of angels. That's the choir. And then the congregation, so to speak, we all get to chime in and say to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I mentioned Handel's Messiah back in February in in the context of, of Isaiah 40. One of my favorite parts about that is that the Isaiah 40 passage opens the Handel's Messiah and this passage closes it. And it's just a beautiful piece of music. If you haven't listened to it, it uh, greatly enhanced my studying of this passage, giving, again, just one more glimpse. Just like I get a glimpse, we can all get a glimpse of what heaven will be like in this church as we're singing. And yes, it's fine to close your eyes while you do that, just like me. And then also, man, Handel's Messiah that gives a little 
taste, a little glimpse of what it is going to be like. I think what's even more awesome and terrifying and even sobering is that this worship service is going on and everyone's singing and praising God and the four creatures are saying amen and the elders are falling down and worshiping and this is right before, this is the, the preamble to this mighty host which will eventually march out of this worship service and out of heaven to do what? To execute judgment on the earth, to gather the elect and return with Christ when he sets up his earthly kingdom. Worship service first, then war. How about that? Worship service and then war. Beloved, our time is up. How do we respond to this? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22 in verse 20. I I can't think of a more appropriate way to respond to this than to echo what the living creatures and the 24 elders and what John himself is saying in Revelation 22, verse 20. Just thinking about our need to daily seek, to daily stand in awe of, and to daily sing to and worship the worthy one, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is our perfect spotless lamb. Let's, let's respond this way. Revelation 22 Verse 20, he who testifies to these these things says, this is Jesus' words, surely I am coming soon. And we can say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you have made your word clear to us. You are the worthy one. You are the perfect spotless lamb. You have conquered You are the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, and man, we just want to worship you, Lord. We so look forward to what you have in store for us. We're so in awe of 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 who you are and what you've done, and Lord, we just can't wait to be there. We can't wait to worship you together. So grateful for a chance to get a little taste of that even right now as we close with a song getting a little taste of what it will be like in heaven. Lord, we thank you for being our perfect and worthy lamb. We praise you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.